This is the SciDev.net podcast with a change to our usual lineup. I'm Kaz Janowski, editor at SciDev.net, and it's my great pleasure to be with you for the next half hour to bring you this month's science news and views on global development. And in today's program, we hear about the SDGs and why there's been a call to tweak one of the targets relating to sustainable development goal number three, to ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. But there's a particular detail in the target, which is it refers to um, what it calls premature mortality. Um, So instead of being worried about people dying regardless of their age, it's focusing on people dying before the age of 70. And that's the part of the target that I and and many other colleagues object to. We follow the footsteps of a researcher who has spent the last 15 years in Africa studying how to respond to famine at a low cost and in a long-lasting way, and who's found a way of bringing dead trees back to life. And having rich biodiversity, uh, trees uh, that are perennial, annuals, different types of livestock, uh, root crops, grain crops, pulses, is a type of insurance system that will enable you to survive. And finally, we travel to Nigeria, where we meet today's brilliant young girl scientists, while they engage in a battle against, wait for it, litter, or should that be garbage? Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast with me, Kaz Janowski, and this month's guests, Daisy Dunn, John Spall, and Lou Del Bello. It's no secret that on average, people around the world are living longer, and few would argue that in response to this, modern societies should get better at caring for their elderly citizens. They are, after all, the guardians of our memories and traditions. But as the global population ages, so the number of elderly people is growing too. Catering for the needs of older people should be an important part of any political agenda. But while the well-being of youth both in the developed and the developing world, is always at the forefront when it comes to imagining a better future, the elderly are all too often missing from the picture. So, Daisy, you're our first guest, and you've been investigating the role of elderly people in development programmes. Why is this an issue that we should be looking at? Well, this month, the UN will meet to finalise their Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. And what we know from the Millennium Goals is that UN directors really shape developing world uh, social policy. So what have you been looking at specifically? I've been looking at target number six, which deals with non-communicable diseases like stroke and cancer. But the problem with it is that it only targets people under the age of 70. Uh, so, and, and some people regard this as being ageist. Yeah, so I spoke to Professor Peter Lloyd-Sherlock from the University of East Anglia. He studies social policy in the developing world, and he thinks that this directive could be considered ageist. Okay, well, let's, let's listen to your report. You're campaigning for a change to be made to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Do you mind telling me a bit about what you think needs to be changed and explain why? Definitely, yes. The Sustainable Development Goals are clearly extremely influential in um, uh, influencing government policy, um, not just in in poorer countries, but also in wealthier countries, um, and are going to replace the Millennium Development Goals for for setting priorities for the next 15 years. And one of these um, targets specifically refers to 
what are called non-communicable diseases. These are conditions like cancer, heart disease, and stroke. Um, and this particular goal, this particular target, is seeking to reduce deaths from these conditions by um, a third over the next 15 years, which, of course, is a very good thing. But there's a particular detail in the target, which is it refers to um, what it calls premature mortality. Um, so instead of being worried about people dying regardless of their age, it's focusing on people dying before the age of 70. And that's the part of the target that I and, and many other colleagues object to, um, because we feel that inevitably that will lead to a shift in prioritization uh, away from older people towards other age groups. And we don't feel there's any ethical or any um, other basis for that shift to be made. Okay, and how likely is it that this exclusion of older people will affect health policy in developing world countries? Focusing on, on low and middle income countries, we do know that the Millennium Development Goal targets were actually quite influ influential um, on health policies, on education policies, on a whole other er set of areas of government interventions. So given that that was the case over the previous 15 years, I think we have to assume that the Sustainable Development Goals will be at least equally influential. And, and one very particular area where I'm, I'm very confident that we will see an effect is in the collection of data, because obviously when you have a target, you need to monitor how countries are performing alongside that target, and you need the, the data to be able to do that. And one of the concerns um, that people have had over the last few years is that we're not very good at collecting health data for people over the age of 70. And of course, if we exclude that age group from the SDG target, um, it becomes even more unlikely that people will, will take the trouble of gathering data on um, disease, on cause of death for people over the age of 70. When you tend not to measure things for certain groups of people, they tend to become neglected by policymakers. And why is it that older people in developing world countries are not really included in data collections? Why aren't they included? Well, I'll give you one very interesting example with reference to HIV-AIDS. Um, UNAIDS, World Health Organization, and most official agencies have encouraged member states to collect information about um, HIV-AIDS, but only for people under the age of 50. And it's claimed that um, people over the age of 50 were less likely to be affected by the condition because, generally speaking, they were seen as being less sexually active now people, because they have access to treatments like antiretrovirals, are more likely to survive into later life. Um, but even where we were able to collect bits of information for people over the age of 50, men and women, we actually found that rates of HIV prevalence were not that much lower than they would be for other age groups. But of course, what this did was it, it, it created a mindset, really, which led to the exclusion of older people from um, interventions from HIV-AIDS. And there may be some interventions that might need to be um, framed or tailored in a particular way so that they would be accessible to groups such as older people. Overall, what are the main repercussions for the health and well-being of elderly people in developing world countries? I think it sends out a very strong signal that um, we don't have to worry so much about keeping people alive beyond the age of 70 as under the age of 70. Just the actual phrasing, premature mortality, suggests that once you're 70 and above, your mortality is not premature. Well, frankly, if I'm 75 and I die of an easily preventable condition and I might have lived another 10 years, I'd see that as pretty preventable and pretty premature as far as I'm concerned. We know the leading cause of death for older people 
in um, low and middle income countries um, is cardiovascular disease and the biggest risk factor for that is high blood pressure and we know that high blood pressure is relatively easily um, managed through cheap basic medication which costs very little. Do you think that there are any other changes that need to be made to better include old people in sustainable development goals or development plans for general health in developing world countries? I think the one thing that could be done is to massively increase the priority of um, controlling conditions, managing conditions like dangerously high blood pressure, hypertension, because this kills more than anything else. And it's relatively easily managed. You don't get drug resistance if you don't take them every day. You don't need a refrigerator for these drugs. They're cheap. Generics are available. But across low- and middle-income countries, the vast majority of people of all ages who've got high blood pressure don't have access to this medication. So if you take South Africa, nearly 80% of people over the age of 50 have got dangerously high blood pressure. And only 10%, in fact, less than 10%, it's about 8% of them, are effectively controlling it. So on one hand, I think it's great that the Sustainable Development Goals are starting to focus on these so-called non-communicable diseases. But on the other hand, I'm utterly aghast that they're excluding an extremely important group. And this is the only Sustainable Development Goal which is actually specifically excluding a group from the target um, and I believe the overall motto of the Sustainable Development Goals is leave no one behind. And I find it quite bizarre that whilst leaving nobody behind, you um, set a mortality target which um, is only focusing on people up to the age of 70. So that was Professor Peter Lloyd Sherlock, uh, recorded by, by Daisy. Daisy, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, we hope to have you back on the programme uh, soon. Thanks very much for having me. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, Kaz Janoski. Last year, a strong El Nino drove the world's weather crazy, bringing severe droughts to some parts of the world and significant flooding to others. Among the more severe outcomes of an El Nino-driven drought, combined with poor preparedness, is the food crisis that hit Ethiopia last autumn, and which is still being felt in that country today. Our multimedia producer, Lou Del Bello, investigated and joins us in the studio today. Hello, Lou. Hi, Cars. So, Lou, what did you discover about the Ethiopian famine and its relation to El Nino? Well, first, a uh, little premise. This has been the worst famine in Ethiopia in more than 30 years. And, and the most worrying thing is that it's far from over. That's because the consequences of a lack of rain that happened between June and September in 2015 will be seen mostly between now and the end of the month. Okay, Lou, let's try and picture what day-to-day life should be like in Ethiopia right now. Well, in a normal year, traditionally, January marks the start of the harvesting period when markets are replenished. But this year, yields are predicted to be very dire And because fodder will be scarce as well, livestock will suffer too. And that's obviously a contributing factor to food insecurity. El Nino surely exacerbated the drought, but it's just a part of the complex picture. And food crises really are very difficult to understand. Okay, maybe you could tell me a bit more about the complexity. 
Well, social and political elements definitely play a part, but land degradation is perhaps the principal contributing factor. And so I wanted to learn more about it, and I talked to Tony Rinaldo. He's an advisor on natural resources and climate change at World Vision. He helped deploy a method to drought-proof land in Ethiopia and other areas at risk in Africa. Here's what he said. My name's Tony Rinaldo. I'm the Principal Natural Resources Advisor for World Vision Australia. Okay, so what do you think causes a food crisis in an arid region? We could think of drought, obviously, but do other factors also play a part? Oh, most definitely many, many factors, very complex from international causes right through to local. But uh, speaking on in local terms, certainly drought is a factor, but what makes people more vulnerable during drought is if, if there's uh, extensive landscape degradation, they're in a poorer position to be able to buffer the worst impacts of that drought. So what I, what I mean by that is if you have deforestation, then there's less natural resources to fall back on. You, you, there's no more wild foods uh, to, to harvest or fuel wood to sell. You have cash to buy grain. So from, from that perspective, you're more vulnerable. The situation you describe is common in arid regions, but we see that food crisis very often hit not only the most arid, but also the poorest. Is there a link there? And can you give me one example of famine induced by drought combined with landscape degradation? Um, early in my career, my, my family and I moved to Niger Republic in West Africa. And uh, this is a country that's experienced decades of deforestation and in fact uh, by by 1980 average tree density on farmland was reduced to about four trees per hectare and um, in 1984 there was a very severe drought it was actually an El Nino year that year and people even in the the supposed good rainfall years they could barely grow enough food to see them through the whole season. And so their food reserves from 1983 had already run out. And then in 1984, with, with the drought, um, there was a total food failure, a crop failure. You mentioned an El Nino year, and 2015 saw this extraordinary intense El Nino that had really severe impact on many regions in the developing world, including East Africa and Ethiopia in particular, where the famine this year was the worst in over 30 years. Now, though the humanitarian response this time has been much better, um, the situation is still pretty dire. Do you think there are methods that could work to better prepare for future food crisis in Ethiopia or elsewhere? Oh, most definitely. It's, it's quite possible to, uh, in, in a sense, drought-proof your land. So there's a wonderful example from northern Ethiopia where um, for over 20 years they had been on famine relief to, to one degree or, or another. And it came to a point where the, the regional government said, we have to relocate you to a more favourable region. This is just not sustainable. And it shocked the community into action. They made a very tough decision to stay. They spent hours per day uh, digging contour ditches. 
they agreed reluctantly, they agreed to tie up their animals and only use cut and carry methods, bring the grass to the animals instead of letting them uh, free, free range across the, the mountainsides. The community has dug in the order of 600 shallow wells and whether or not it rains, uh, they have irrigation and they're growing two to three crops per year. Since 2010, we ran a workshop on this method called farmer-managed natural regeneration. We're, we're regener regenerating trees from living tree stumps and from the seed, seed that's in the soil. It's been there uh, sometimes for years. And in the few short years since 2010, on the grazing land and the farmland in the valley, they've regenerated close to a million trees. Yeah, so really, with local methods and resilience building, they were able to turn these arid regions in a place that produces not only plants, but also water. Um, do you think it is possible to apply this method anywhere, or there are crisis situations where the problem has to be handled differently? Uh, no, I, I would say that the methods in, in each context might vary somewhat, but the principles stand firm. If there are no plants in the landscape, and, and sadly this is the case for much of our agricultural and grazing land, so for eight months of the year there's no green plants converting sunlight energy into, into sugars. So I, I look to see is there um, uh, a, a good covering of green plants for a large percentage of the year. The second is the water cycle. Is the water cycle functioning? Uh, then biodiversity. The weather will always change. Whether or not you have an El Nino year, whether or not you have climate change, and having rich biodiversity, uh, trees uh, that are perennial, annuals, different types of livestock, uh, root crops, grain crops, pulses, is a type of insurance system that will enable you to survive. So looking ahead, we know that these weather extremes are likely to occur more often also as a result of climate change. But based on your experience, what's your advice to countries and communities at risk? So, so there's a number of things that can be done. If, if I was forced to pick just one, and it, it won't be a total solution, but it will go a long way towards helping people to be resilient. That one would be this, this method of farmer-managed natural regeneration. It, it's very simple. Anybody can do it. And it's scalable. Over a 20-year period in uh, Niger Republic, uh, that average tree density of four trees per hectare in 1980 rose to an average of 45 trees per hectare across 5 million hectares. Imagine, if they could do it in 20 years with no real strategy, what's to stop you doing the same area, 5 million hectares, in just five years? Technically, physically, it's possible. Do you have the will to do it? <laughs> that was Tony Renodo discussing the benefits of farmer-managed natural regeneration. Thanks, Lou, for bringing us that story today. My pleasure, Kaz. Stay with us for more science stories from the world of global development. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, Kaz Janoski, and reporter and filmmaker, John Spall. Hi, John. Hi, Kaz. So, John, you've just returned from a trip to Nigeria where you've been filming and recording interviews. Uh, that's right, Kaz. 
Good afternoon, sir. I'm by name Adam Peace, and here with me is Nzadi Esther. We are all members of Team Realistic from Government Girls Secondary School, Duty. And the title of our project is In relation with this race robot game titled Trash Trek. Non-biodegradable waste has become a problem in the society because these waste do not decompose when they are being disposed. Some ideas were brought up that they should be burned when they are being disposed, but we discovered so that some dangerous gases like hydrogen sulfide, carbon monoxide are released into the atmosphere, which causes, the, which causes the danger to human life and even plants. Ideas were also brought up that they should be buried, but we discovered that when they are being buried, Yes, five to ten years later, they resurface back to the earth's surface again, either when construction has been made or when buildings have been erected. So we thought of a special way of changing them back because most of non-biodegradable waste are petroleum products. As you can see here, we have nylon, but, um, nylon and water bottles. So a waste combustion was produced. And as you can see here, we have a step A combustion, a step B combustion, which is connected to each other with a delivery tube. We have our ritual stand there and our library condenser and our source of it, which was, which was made by us. So what are we listening to there, John? Um, I, when I was in Abuja, I met um, some very enthusiastic um, school children, mostly girls, who were working on a science project that they'd been researching on. Um, it was part of what's called the first Lego League Challenge. Okay, let me just stop you there. Lego, is that, are we talking about plastic... We are indeed, yes. Basically, the, the first Lego League challenge is a challenge that takes place in about 81 countries, working with school children from 81 countries across the world. And basically what they do is they provide the, the children with uh, Lego robots that they program, and then they're asked to basically complete various different tasks with these robots. And each year they have a different theme. This year it was called Trash Trek. So basically what they had to do was to program these robots to collect these blocks of Lego that represent rubbish and to pick them up and take them around this tabletop mat and then deliver them in places where the, this rubbish was recycled. Uh, and I saw the pictures that, that you did for one of our photo galleries, uh, which continues to do very well on the site. It's very popular. And they are very engaging pictures indeed. Um, so tell us more about who organises this particular um, project. An organisation called the Odyssey Educational Foundation was working with these school kids. So they'd been working with the school children for the past two months working with them on this project and on the robo robotics, teaching them how to program the robots because none of these children had had any experience of programming the robots beforehand. Let's start off by finding out a little bit more about the Odyssey Educational Foundation. Sure. So the foundation was, the, was set up by a, a woman called Stella Uskuchkwa-Dennis who founded the organisation in 2013 and I asked her what inspired her to set up the organisation. I went to India to do my master's in um, telecom management. My, my aim was to come back to Nigeria and join a bigger telecom organization. But when I got there, I saw that um, there's a kind of education the Indians run. They close school by 1.30 and they go into an after school club, which is run by most NGOs. And so there they began to, they teach them how to, um, maybe make robots that were moving and doing some maniac jobs for them. They, they taught them how to uh, begin early to maybe if, if a child wants to go into the medical field, the child begins at a very tender age. I got inspired by that. I 
I went to various STEM after schools. I began to study them. I saw what they did. So when I came back, all the urge to go back to the telecom industry died. So I, I set up the place to get Niger the Nigerian child the same kind of opportunity. Odyssey Educational Foundation um, is here to bridge the gap because there's a gap, a, di a digital divide gap uh, as far as um, digital education is concerned in Nigeria. And what we do is we go to schools. We're not just about the robotics, but robotics education is part of the things we do. Um, we also do um, basic um, computer um, skills for the young girls in school. And we start early because we've noticed that um, the, the issue we're having with the gap is because we start quite late. So we decided to start with the children in the primary schools, secondary schools, we begin to expose them to um, programming, coding. We teach the children to how to make apps. We also do the training for the teachers because most of our teachers do, do not know how to use some of these um, electronic gadgets and um, how to use some of this technology that are evolving each day. So we also do training for the teachers. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Um, and she talks about STEM, that's science, technology, engineering and mathematics um, in Nigeria. And what were your perceptions of STEM and uh, young women in, in Nigeria, John? Well, it's interesting because I, I visited the Ministry of Science and Technology and one of the the things that I noticed there was there were actually very few women working in the science Ministry of Science and Technology. And it's interesting, I, I read one fact that only 17% of scientific researchers are women. So there's obviously not enough women who are embarking on a career in science. And I spoke to Stella about uh, the reasons why more girls weren't embarking on careers in science. And this is what she told me. There's still a barrier, but the awareness is becoming better. When I schooled, I was the only girl in my class. I did electrical electronics. I was the only girl in my class. But now, if you go to schools now, you see five girls, six girls, seven girls in the class. There's still the barrier because of early marriages and all that. But we're be, uh, doing a lot of sensitization, talking to um, the mothers that they should not give out their uh, children early in marriage, that if they educate the child, and especially in the STEM um, field, that they are sure to get a better um, nation. And so that's why we've, we've been doing a lot of sensitization. Answer. So that was Stella, the founder. Um, what about the girls themselves? Did you get a chance to talk to them, John? I did indeed. I, I, I spoke to quite a few of the, the schoolgirls, and they were all very enthusiastic and very keen to enter into careers in science. Um, here's a flavour of the interviews of two of the girls that I spoke to. Can you tell me your name and what school you go to? I'm Uhebi Jama and I go to Junior Secondary School Year 11. And what have you gained from working on this project? Well, this project exposed me to the world of science. Like, opened me to my future destiny because this is what I really like to study. So, are you, do you want to go to university and study science? Yeah. And what particular area of science are you interested in? Well, I want to enter in the field of engineering, technology. Being a girl before you did this, what, did you think that this wasn't something that girls did? Well, in every career I believe that it's not only for male. Mm. Because I believe that I, a female, can come out and show the world that not only male have a gift inside them. 
Excellent. Thank you very much. Good luck. Could I ask you what your name is? Yes, well, my name is Umar Joy. And how old are you? I'm 16. And what have you gained from this project? I've gained a lot. I've, it has helped me to improve my skill because actually I love um, engineering work. At home, like maybe um, my mom's fridge spoiled, like, I'll kind of like look for how to fix it. My mom will be kind of like, what are you doing then? And I'll say, I want to fix your freezer. And she'll be kind of like, I, can you do that? I'll say yes. And she'll be amazed and laughed at me. It's more than I could do. I couldn't fix my freezer. <laughs> <laughs> and do you want to go on into a career in science? Yeah, I want to do that. Because I love mechanical engineer. Well, very good. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> So yeah, masses of enthusiasm there. Uh, I wish them luck and we, we wish them luck. Um, what about ambitions for the project, John? Where's it heading? Uh, well, Stella is um, yeah, particularly ambitious for the foundation. Uh, she wants to extend it nationwide. Uh, and she has a particular dream that she told me about. A dream. So she sounds to me like she's a, a champion of science, very often talked about, but seldom met all too few. Let's have a listen to Stella. I have a dream. I've always been dreaming. Whenever I close my eyes, what I see is a big aeroplane in the front of my office. And what am I thinking? I'm thinking, oh, the children will one day build an aeroplane. And the resources we have in Nigeria is not able to help us get there. But we're talking to some, um, some people outside the country that are able to give us resources to teach these children how to make airplanes, work in the aeronautic industries, work in the medical industries. A lot of um, technologies are coming up to check your blood pressure, even apps now that can check your blood pressure, check pregnancy and all that. So that's all the things we're looking at, um, being able to do. And we're thinking of um, expanding beyond um, Abuja, going to even the remotest parts of um, Nigeria because that's where we think um, we'll be able to convert a lot of people who are not sure what they want to become in the future to begin to pursue a STEM-related field. And that's what we're looking for in Nigeria because we have depended a lot on our natural resources that has made us depend so much on labor. We're able to drill the oil and sell the oil, but that's not it. We're thinking of where we use our knowledge to be able to um, make the economy what it should be. So Stella Uzuchukwa Dennis ending that report from John Spall. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Kaz. Well, that's all for this month from me, Kaz Yanoski, and from our team here in London. Goodbye and be sure to join us next time. <laughs> <laughs>